Chuck, I've got to know, were you just thinking when that wheel flew off and passed you by, were you just thinking, not that wheel, Jesus? <laughs> I, it occurred to me and I forgot to ask. <sighs> yeah, I mean, a secondary thought would have been you, you picked a fine time to, to, to leave me with loose wheel, yeah. <laughs> Y'all ever do anything to be part of the in crowd? To be popular, you ever do anything that you look back now on and it's kind of cringy? I mean, I'm of the age where I remember, you know, the parachute pants of the 80s and we had tight rolled jeans and things like that. Yeah, you look back, it was a little bit of silly, a little little bit silly, but I tell you, I'll take any of that over uh, what some of y'all did in the 70s. Doesn't this dude look like he's on his way to a Bee Gees concert with that nice one-piece romper and the, you know, the zipper that looks like the medallion? Any of you have one of those? Yeah, Not going to admit to it now, are you? That's okay. It gets worse because we also have men in belted sweaters. I mean, that dude in the lower left of that one is, is just really quite impressive. It's, I, I, whoever thought that was a good idea? But, uh, I, but, but it makes more sense, though, than uh, the mustard people. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, that, I, I, I guess, you know, they invaded at some point in the 70s, and, you know, then there were all their, uh, their sworn enemies, the, the Denimites. I, the bell-bottoms are the least objectionable thing in that photo. Uh, yeah, if you ever Google image search 70s fashion disasters, you end up with a lot of interesting things. I just, you know, people would wear just absolutely insane stuff because that was the style at the time. And we want to be part of the in crowd. We want to be accepted. We want to belong. Eventually, we learn it doesn't matter. I mean, especially if you have to go to those lengths. <laughs> yeah, if it takes a belted sweater to belong, that is no place you want to be. But sometimes we do have a need to belong. We do need to be in. We do want to be loved by our families, cared for by our friends. And then when we talk about being Christian, we want to be in Christ. That's a statement that's going to pop up a lot this morning. John uses it a lot in his first letter. But before we start talking about 1 John, I want to talk about what it was like in the later New Testament times. We're talking, you know, the late 60s, the decade, you know, the 70s, not like 19, but I mean like year 67, year 72, that type of thing. Threats to Christianity had begun to, had begun to arise from within. Now, the persecution that had popped up in the mid-60s, it would kind of come and go. You know, under Nero, it was really strong, and, you know, but over time, the emperors got bored with it, so the official Roman persecution started to die out. But here's the thing, that type of persecution ended up strengthening the church. You know, if, if it's advantageous to join the church, if you know, being part of the church is a good thing for your social standing, you start getting a lot of people in the church who really don't belong there. They're not there because they believe. They're not there because they want to follow Jesus. They're there to be part of the in crowd. 
when there's persecution, the only people left behind are people for whom it matters. If there's a social cost to being a Christian, you don't get the wishy-washies. All you have is people who are forced to be serious about their, fa- about their faith. So persecution actually, you know, perversely strengthens the church. And I kind of wonder if we're entering an era of that right now. Where there's no social benefit to being a Christian, there are social drawbacks. So the numbers drop, but the faithfulness increases. It's not necessarily a bad thing. But that's kind of what was going on at the time. But toward the end of that first century, they also started seeing, okay, they don't feel that pressure anymore. Now it's okay to be a Christian. And people are coming in who don't really believe. They started seeing false teaching bear its own fruit of outright heresy. What was things that weren't quite right suddenly became, all right, here's a belief system within Christianity that actually undermines Christianity. Not everything that is taught in the name of Jesus is correct. You kind of want to be careful if people start hanging crosses on things. If you're like, you know, I'm not sure that's right. Folks, just putting a cross on it doesn't make it right. There are teachings that people will say, well, this is a Christian teaching. You look at it, you're like, this is actually the opposite of Christian. This destroys faith in Jesus. It doesn't build it. It draws us further away from God and more into the world. That's what was going on then too. The biggest early heresy was what was called Gnosticism. It was a mix of Christian teaching and Greek philosophy. You, as Christianity spread among the Gentiles, as it went out into new places, you had people that were starting to say, you know, maybe we can put this stuff together. You know, Christianity is kind of an interesting religion because it's not limited to any particular culture. It's not like, uh, it's not, it's not like Islam, where if you're going to be Islamic, you have to immerse yourself in what is an Arabic culture. You cannot read the Quran and have it be authoritative unless you read it in Arabic. Meanwhile, Christians are busy translating the Bible into every language and every dialect we can get it into. But as they bring it into these new cultures, sometimes you get a little bit of mixing. And you know the culture is expressed in how we worship. In our Christianity kind of reflects a little bit of who we are as a culture. Sometimes it's a good thing. Sometimes, eh, not so much. And as people who are steeped in Greek, Greek philosophy start believing, they start trying to mix it. One of the tenets of Greek philosophy is that that which is physical, that which is matter, is bad. That which is spirit is good. Anything that is physical in this world is tainted. You see this a bit if uh, you ever took a philosophy course and you heard about Plato and the fire in the cave and the shadows on the cave wall. Look, it's a bunny. No, Plato is basically saying... Plato, P-L-A-T-O, not P-L-A-Y-D-O-H. Yeah, uh, uh, he, what he is saying is that in this world, all we get are the shadows. All we get is a pale image of the real, the true, because we live in a material world. 
And we are material girls. No, we're, we, we, we live in a world of things that will eventually pass away and then we can be spirit and it'll be all good. And they were taking that, that framework, that philosophical idea, and bringing it into Christianity. The result of this was something that didn't work. Okay, we talk about the desires of the flesh and how those are bad. Okay, flesh is bad. Eh, you're starting to become, start, you're, you're on dangerous territory. Because what they would say is, okay, Jesus, because he was good, he was only spirit. He didn't come in the body. Little problem with that. Because if Jesus did not have a body, he was not really here. If he was not really here, he could not die for our sins. As the uh, philosopher said when they were hunting the predator, if it bleeds, we can kill it. Friends, if Jesus didn't have a body, he didn't bleed, he couldn't die. If he couldn't die, we have no sacrifice for sin. If we have no sacrifice for sin, we are still in our sins. This is what we call in theological circles a problem. Because we are separated from God, never to be reconciled. So when they started mixing Gnosticism into the church, into Christianity, the end result was an internal rot that left everything logically inconsistent. It destroyed the faith. And you're sitting there looking at me like, whoa, I wasn't expecting, you know, Greek philosophy on a Labor Day weekend. That's a little heavy, Phil. Well, sorry, but you kind of have to understand that if you're going to get the writings of John. They maintained that Jesus could not have been our sacrifice for sin. You can't be a Christian and believe that. So John's gospel, as well as his letters, deal with this. He doesn't really attack it in a systematic way, but he puts forth the truth in a way that doesn't leave room for that type of thinking. Because in the gospel of John, we see a Jesus who is more human. Not that he wasn't God, but we see the personal side of Christ. He weeps when his friend Lazarus is passed. After his resurrection, he sits down with his disciples and eats fish. That doesn't sound like a good breakfast, but you know, you, you work with what you've got. But ghosts don't eat, friends. I know you've seen Ghostbusters with Slimer and the hotel cart and going to town on that, but you know, that, that's Hollywood. You know, if you don't have a body, there's nothing to you, you can't eat. You know? It's like the Halloween joke, you know, skeleton walks into a bar, give me a drink and a mop, you know. It, Skeleton goes right through. You'll get it later. But, the, but if Jesus had no body, he couldn't have done the things he did in the Gospel of John. And those themes carry over into his letters like 1 John. He is pointing out That Jesus was real. He's pointing out that sin matters. Because as they spread these falsehoods, they had people confused about how Christians were to be. They claimed that sin, sin only affects our material body. Because you know, sin, sin is a material thing. It's done in our fleshly bodies. We're going to be spirit in heaven. It doesn't matter. 
Anytime, friends, you have somebody saying sin doesn't matter, you've got somebody you need to quit listening to. And so John the Apostle writes this first letter to draw Christians to true lives in Christ. Not lives based around Greek philosophy with a veneer of Christianity, but lives that are truly steeped in the Son of God. Tradition holds he worked in Asia Minor, particularly around Ephesus. That is, if you look at a map, you know, it's the very western edge of Turkey on the Aegean Sea across from Greece. Possibly this letter of 1 John was aimed at churches in the region, but it could have been more general. It applies really to anybody, anytime. And throughout the, through this letter, he uses the image of being in him. There are some ways of being that are in Christ. We abide in him. We belong to him. We identify with him. But there are also some ways of living that are not in Christ. We reject him, ignore him. We go our own way. John is telling us that Christians are to be in Christ. As we read this relatively short letter, John is telling us to live in Christ. There's a lot of ways we can be but we should be in Christ. The world is telling us a whole bunch of things, but we're to be in Christ. And he describes what life in Christ is like. He starts off in chapter 1 and shows that when we turn to Jesus, we declare our belief, our allegiance to him. We leave our life of sin behind. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. John opens this letter by pointing out that in him we are cleansed. Dealing with that issue of sin here. Now sin is any kind of action that is not just actively evil or wrong, but just falls short of the character of God. The word for sin in the Greek just means missing the mark. Usually when we talk about sin, we're thinking of, you know, the, the villain with the long twirly mustache. And, you know, just trying to do all sorts of bad stuff. But folks, sin is even just boring. It's simple. It's just not measuring up. Years ago when I was in junior high school at Barnwell over on Jung Station Road, we, uh, we had an archery unit. Yeah, they actually gave junior hires bows and arrows in school. It was a different time then. Any of you ever have that type of unit in school? Yeah, or a couple of nods. Yeah, you know I'm not crazy. Well, at least that's not why I'm crazy. But, yeah. Do you remember what that was like? Any of you ever learned how to shoot a bow and arrow? You go out there, you got the target. Man, your first shots, you're lucky if you reach the target. And then you get a little better, but you're aiming at the bullseye. But it's so hard to hit. It's not moving. But your shots will go here, there, then you'll hit the target but not quite get the bullseye. Sometimes I like to shoot skeet, and as a friend of mine who taught me the game explained it, he said, it's not that they're hard to hit, it's that they're so easy to miss. 
those little clay discs as they fly. You know, you think it's simple, and usually it is, but, man, anything will mess up your aim. You start swinging the gun as it's flying right before you pull the trigger. Did I leave the iron on? Boom. Yeah, missed it. Anything that throws off your concentration, you miss. So when we were shooting the arrows, eventually after a week or so, you'll hit the bullseye every now and then. Probably more of an accident. But a lot of the times you just miss. Why? Because you're not that good at it. And the fact is you're using some of the cheapest archery equipment known to man. Arrows are about as straight as the lumber from Home Depot. But here's the thing. You're aiming at the bullseye. You know what you want to hit, and you don't quite do it. Folks, when it comes to our behavior, that's sin. You know how we should be. And it's not that we want to do evil. It's not that we are out there saying, well, this person, you know, I can do good for them, but I'm just going to ruin them. You know, we think that's sin, but we don't realize that sin is even trying to do good and just not being good enough. And John says that sin is a problem. These Gnostics, they claim that our actions in the body didn't matter. Because our body is physical, it will eventually pass away, it will get left behind. They said, our sin stays here. What happens in earth stays in earth. So the result is these false teachers, they were notable for their sinful lifestyles. Friends, if anybody claims that sin is irrelevant or it is no big deal, they are missing the core truth of Christianity. Sin is a big deal. Sin matters. You want proof of that? Sin is so bad, Jesus had to send his son to deal with it. Sin is so bad that after the very first sin by just two people, God said, okay, here's how it's going to be. And he oriented the whole of human history from that point until Jesus would come live a sinless life and die for our sins. That's what it took. That tells me it's a big deal. He didn't just say, ah, it doesn't matter. We're going to wait until, we're going to see how this pans out. Maybe Cain and Abel fix things. We're going to give it a few generations, see how it pans out. No, sin is so bad that it took one to ruin creation. Friends, sin is that bad. And the real benefit to serving Christ, it's not that we become nice people. Yes, as we serve God, we become better people. As we, as we are shaped by him, we get better. But you know what? That's not the benefit. It's a symptom of what's happened. The real benefit to serving Christ is we are forgiven people. In Christ, we are forgiven. And John uses this image of light and dark to describe righteousness and sin. He says, where there's light, darkness cannot be. It's amazing how little light it takes to ruin the darkness. Don't believe me? Tonight, get a phone charger, one with just one little dim LED on it. Put it in your bedroom before bed. 
Before, when you turn off the light, it won't th- seem like much. Then you lay down, your eyes will adjust, and you know what you see? Blink, blink, blink. Because darkness always gives way before light. Another way you can try this, go into your basement, turn out all the lights, nice and dark. Take a box, fill it with darkness, put tape on it, seal it up, go into another room, light one candle. Just one puny little birthday candle. And take that box of dark and pour it on the candle. Open up the box, pour it on the candle, see which one wins. How many boxes of dark does it take to extinguish the candle? I see some smiles because you know there's no such thing as a box of dark. Brent's light always wins out over darkness. God is light. In him, there's no darkness at all. He can't, you know, sin is so bad, it is forever separated from him. And we don't really get it because we're sinful. We don't really understand righteousness. It's that gulf between us. That's what Jesus bridged in our forgiveness. Friends, we are to be like God. We cannot live lives of sin while claiming to be with him. Yes, we sin, but we are forgiven. Friends, there's none of us that is so perfect that we don't need forgiveness. Every last one of us in here. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know that. But praise God, he has given his son for us. The tone of our life needs to change from sin to righteousness, from darkness to light. If we are to be in Christ, we need to be in him We need to be righteous. And friends, we have been cleansed so we can be like him. All must turn to Christ for cleansing. Not just the people we think of as bad. You know, we've got our own little mental ranking of humanity, don't we? Here's the good people. Here's the bad people. Most of us are in between, but we think, you know, we're pretty good. Even the best person on that list needs cleansing from Christ. You can spend your time reading books to the poor children at the orphanage and taking care of the three-legged puppies and doing all of that, and you still need to be cleansed by Christ. It's a requirement. We've all sinned. Only some of us have come to Christ and been forgiven. Every last person needs to turn to Jesus. There's no other way. No other fount, no other place we find that cleansing. Jesus is very clear about that, again, in the Gospel of John. But having turned to him, we find there's a new way to be. We find that we are cleansed, and now there's a new tone to our lives. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. John points out that in Christ we behave. One of the things I like about John in his writings, he's always very upfront about what he's trying to get across. He's very clear. 
He's trying to keep his fellow Christians from sin. Because sin separates, separates us from God. It destroys the soul. But he says we have Christ on our side. Jesus is our advocate. You ever hear the joke that a good lawyer knows the law, a great lawyer knows the judge? When we go in to the judgment room of God, friends, we're not cowering before him. See, we've conferred out in the hallway with a lawyer. Jesus, his son. Jesus put his arms around and said, okay, I don't want you to worry about this. We got this. He says, you're guilty of sin. We all know it. There's no doubt. Yeah, I know, Jesus. But he says, here's the thing. I've paid the price. We know you're guilty. The penalty has been levied. I've paid it. And what's more, we're going to go in. We're going to see the judge. The judge is, is my dad. We're going to go in here. I'm going to say, we're together. You're with me. You're good. And we go in. The creator of the universe, the holy God of all, is upon his throne looking down at us. And Jesus says, hey, Dad, I want you to meet my friend. I paid the price for the sins. He's good. She's good. They're with me. We'll see you at the house later. God says, we're cooking up a feast. We'll see you there. Friends, that's what judgment day is like for the Christian. We're not going in there wondering how this is going to pan out. We're going in knowing the fix is in. And its name is Jesus Christ. The penalty's been paid. That's what John's describing here. We don't just know the judge. The judge's son is our lawyer. He is the sacrifice for our sins. He has paid the price. And that price being paid, we are in him. We obey him. No Christian friend should live an unrestrained or uncontrolled life. It doesn't mean we are no fun. I've met some Christians that think that, we, you know, okay, being in Christ means every morning you've got to suck on a lemon just to get your day going. And then we sit there like this at everything we see. Oh, no, 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 no. Jesus was the best Christian that there ever was, and he was always laughing. People were coming to him because he was fun. It's a different kind of fun than the world is used to. But our lives are no longer governed by sin. We're no longer looking at the, 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 the wrong things this world has and saying, man, that sounds like fun. We've left those ways of being in our past. And John has some very strong language for those who don't behave properly. Because a number of them that he's talking about were these Gnostic teachers. Remember, they said, oh, it doesn't matter what we do. I can do whatever I want. So they would come into churches. They'd take advantage of impressionable young women. They would cheat people. And they'd say, ah, oh, the sin doesn't matter. And John's saying, nobody who lives a life like that knows God. Nobody who is characterized by sin is in Christ. They might claim it, but they're lying. 
They would gleefully sin, claiming it didn't matter. Friend, sin always matters. If we belong to Christ, we do as Jesus did. We're going to be imperfect at it. Again, we're shooting at the target, friends, but our aim isn't quite so good. Thankfully, we've got a gracious God. We've got the sacrifice of Christ covering our sins. This is a clear call for us to change our lives. We may have ingrained ways of being. We may have patterns of thinking or long-held attitudes that are not like Jesus. And they need to change. Pray. Ask God's Spirit to mold you. Try to act in the way that you should. It's going to be long. It's going to be hard. It might look like this. You realize, wait, this, this part of life, my life, isn't how it should be. So here's what I need to do. Lord, help me to change it. You read the Bible, you get your mind thinking on the things of God, you pray to Him, the Spirit's working in you, the situation comes up, and you, a light should go on. Hey, here's where I need to be like Jesus. And you might try and, well, partial credit. Instead of a 0%, it's a 20%. Okay, we're moving the right direction. Not quite where we need to be. Lord, forgive me, I... I'm going to try to do better. And you keep repeating the process. Next time, gets a little better. Next time, gets a little better. Man, you might be working on that your entire life. You might have setbacks. Times where you outright fail. But the trend line is going up. Friends, God doesn't demand perfection of us. But he does demand that we try. If we are truly in Christ, we're going to act as he acted. And we're going to recognize that our behavior matters. We're going to understand that how we act in different situations is a reflection on how we are in Christ. We can't hold back parts of our lives and say, Jesus doesn't come here. And John focuses on one particular way later in the book. And this is a way in which if I hadn't mentioned it, man, I would not be covering 1 John responsibly. Because John is known in church history as the apostle of love. Why? Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. He says a lot of things in this letter about loving fellow Christians. Friends, in Christ, we love. Christians are to love one another. Constant theme in the New Testament. We care for each other. We love each other just as much as we love ourselves. Now, I do want to point out this does not mean we're a doormat. It doesn't mean we allow ourselves to be taken advantage of. It doesn't mean we never speak up for you know, a preference or anything. But what it means is we look at each other and we say, I love this person enough that I am willing to not get my preferences all the time. 
I love this person enough that I want to see them growing closer to God. Doesn't mean we're always going to like each other. Wait, Phil, you say we're supposed to love each other, but maybe not like each other? Oh, this is easy to understand. You ever have siblings? Yeah, it's starting to click, isn't it? I got two little sisters. One of them's up here. I didn't want them. I didn't get a vote. But as they grew, you know, my brother and I, I've got an older brother. He didn't want any of us. (laughs) Too bad. But... uh, (laughs) But as we all grew up together, you know, one thing happened. You know, we got to aggravate our little sisters. That is the, uh, you know, that is the prerogative of every older brother out there. But I tell you what, if anybody messed with my little sisters, it would not have gone well for them. I mean, when Julie was married here in this building, immediately after the wedding, I went up to her husband, Will. He's downstairs. If you ask him, he will admit to this. You know, he he remembers it. I threatened his life. I said, buddy, if you ever hurt her, you will not be missed. I got a father-in-law that used to raise hogs. I know where he used to bury them. Another set of bones isn't going to be a big deal. I didn't always like having little sisters, but I loved them. Still do, kind of. Yeah, we don't always get along perfectly, but we recognize we're all on the same team here, right? We don't always agree, but we understand and we're going to grant that each other, we're working for the kingdom. Friends, we talk about loving God, but our love for God is shown by our love for one another. John points out we haven't seen God, but we have seen each other. If we can't show love to each other, if we can't work for each other's benefit, if we can't set aside our differences, our dislikes, to work together, how can we love God? Now, I tell you, I'm proud of you guys for how you love your fellow Christians. Last week, Chuck, you know, came in and said, you know, we need, what was it? almost 400 bucks for Bibles for Cebu Seminary. I get an email from him. I don't remember if it was Sunday afternoon or Monday morning. And he said, they gave 570 bucks. (laughs) And I was like, yes, praise the Lord. What I didn't say is, I am not surprised. I didn't think we'd need two weeks for that appeal. Why? Because I know how generous y'all are. You've never met your brothers and sisters in the Philippines. And yet you open up your wallets for them. We talk about opening up hearts, man. Opening up hearts one thing. Open up your wallets a little harder. I'm, I'm, I'm always pleased every year with how you're eager to support missions. And you, we, you, in another month, you're going to get a chance to do it again, to make promises. And I want you to show your love in your generosity. Friends, we may even get a chance here in a couple months to see other Christians from around the world. This week, I drafted a letter, sent off a letter. For Alexander and Julia Grebenyuk, who are church planters in Lutsk, Ukraine. Put this one on Christview Christian Church letterhead, inviting them to come to the United States for International Conference on Missions, is connected with Mission to Russia, of which I am a director. But uh, our missions group said, yes, we want it. we'll sign the letter. Gary, our, our missions director, sign the letter. 
Pray for them. This week, Grebenyuk's are traveling to Warsaw, Poland. They are meeting with the U.S. consulate to see if they get a visa to the U.S. That's why we wrote the letter. We tried to set set it up so our field director, Sasha Lukmanov, from Russia could come. But, yeah, no Russian is getting a visa to the U.S. right now. That went nowhere. We're hoping we can bring the Ukrainians over, and if they can come over, friends, you're going to meet them. You will meet Christians whose lives you are changing because of your generosity and your love for them. I've, Lindsay and I have had a chance to meet them, the great people. I hope you get to. These are Christians we haven't met, but man, we still got to love each other at close range. And sometimes it's harder to love somebody at close range because somebody far away, you don't even have to think about them most of the week. Maybe pray for them once a day, call it done. Like your siblings... At close range, they get on your nerves. But friends, it's love to keep putting up with each other, to give them some grace. Because you know they're giving you grace. You know, fact is, friends, we're some, sometimes the difficult people is us. It'd be nice if everybody else was the difficult people, but no, sometimes I know the difficult person. I see him in the mirror. We all need grace. We all have to show grace, but that's how we love each other. And when we show each other love, we show we, lo- we love God. Our love for each other is a result of God's love for us. He loved us so we can love each other. He has shown us the way. I do want to note here, do not let the world define love. The world will say, well, you Christians, you got weird ideas of love. Friends, our ideas of love come from God. I see what the world defines as love. They don't know the difference between lust and love out there. They sometimes think aiding and abetting is love. Sometimes love is telling each other no. Sometimes love is calling each other back to what God wants for us. And if we've let the world define love for us, if another Christian says, hey, you're doing something, it's not right, you need to come back. Well, if we've got the false definition of love taking residence in our hearts, then we hear that and we hear I don't love you and we just run off and we throw fit. Friends, love doesn't necessarily mean being nice all the time. It means we care for each other. We want the best for each other. We're trying to care for each other, to draw each other closer to God. And that's a challenging, difficult thing. We need to truly love each other. Are you seeing to each other's needs? Are you working for the best for each other? Are you getting along together? Are you willing to let somebody else's preference take over from time to time. Friends, when we love, we are where we need to be. We are in Him. When we don't love one another, when we reject fellow Christians, we're not doing as He has done. We're not in Him. John in 1 John says a lot about love. Man, I could preach whole series of sermons on what John says about love for fellow Christians out of this book. Why? Because our love for each other is a reflection of his love for us. And John is saying that that's the real, true test of what it means to be a Christian. Do we love those whom God loves? Do we love those who love him? 
When we, if he is in us, we love one another. We are in him. And John is trying to get us to where we need to be, to be in him. We are in him when we are cleansed from sin. We are in him when we obey him. We are in him when we love each other. Friends, every Christian ought to be in him because I don't know how you can be a Christian and not be in him. The only in crowd that matters is being part of those who are in our Lord. Thankfully, we don't have to have belted sweaters to be in our Lord. To be part of the in crowd with God, we don't need those weird looking rompers. We don't need the MC Hammer parachute pants. In the love of our Lord, we may be too legit to quit. And the devil can't touch this. But no, in him we serve him. We don't get it done except that we believe, we obey, and we love each other. Let's be in him together. Stand with me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you do for us. We praise you for, Father... You've redeemed us. You've shaped us. You've called us to be like you. Help us to love each other in thought and in deed. Help us to obey you. Help us continually to be cleansed by you. Father, help us to be in you. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.